Hi, this is David Flower, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S., and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast, and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Good morning, Grantham Church. Welcome to worship. Thanks for being here and joining us via live stream. I'm David Flowers. I'm senior pastor here uh, at Grantham. We are in a series called The Gospel of the Kingdom. This is week six in our seven-week series, The Gospel of the Kingdom, what it is, why it matters, and how it mobilizes the church. Jesus said the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. But what is this gospel of the kingdom, and what does it mean to believe in the gospel and to partner with God in his kingdom work? And that's what we've been looking at in this series. And here's how we've been defining good news and kingdom of God. What is the good news? It is the gospel story of how God has been at work in the world and is now redeeming it in Jesus Christ, who will one day return to bring the fullness of the kingdom. Again, this good news story encompasses the story of Israel. That is the Old Testament and the larger biblical story. It encompasses the story of Jesus the Messiah, his life, his teachings, death, resurrection, and ascension, and the story of what Jesus continues to do through his church as we anticipate his return. And here's how we're defining the kingdom of God. It is the reign and the rule of God on the earth, which always looks like Jesus, loving others, healing, reconciling, sacrificing self, showing mercy, doing justice things like that. If it doesn't look like Jesus, it's not the kingdom of God. It's simple as that. So this is a kingdom that is already, but it is not yet. And we said we live in the overlap of two ages, the present evil age and the age to come. So the future is breaking into the present, and we're called to believe in that good future to further the kingdom of God, to be signposts pointing others to and showing others where the world is going. So heaven is coming to earth. God's space and our space will be joined in Christ's return. So here's where we've been so far in this series and what we have left. We began with gospel as story. In week two, we looked at gospel truths. That's when we looked at the gospel in chairs illustration. Some of you remember that. And week three, the gospel in you. Week four, gospel in us. Last week, we heard from Pastor Melissa, gospel living, and today is gospel to others. And the next Sunday, we conclude the series. I hope you'll be here for that and tune in for that. There's a message we've entitled, Gospel Saturation. What does it look like to be called to take the gospel to every man, woman, and child, to join with the church in our area and within our sphere of influence in furthering the gospel of the kingdom? And if it's not already etched into your photographic memory, here's how we've been depicting and visually capturing the good news story and message. We see God's space heaven and our space earth 
interlocked and, and, and interwoven in together. Uh, in the Old Testament, the, the coming together of these two spaces would have been represented by the tabernacle and the temple. And of course, Jesus for us, he said that he is the temple of God on two feet. Jesus is the coming together of these two spaces. Jesus is crucified, dead, buried, raised, raised from the dead. Resurrection of Jesus symbolizes the coming together of these two spaces. In the body of Jesus is heaven and earth having come together. So Jesus is the first. He's the prototype. He is the signpost saying this is where everything is going. Heaven and earth are coming together in Jesus. The kingdom is coming. It's already, but not yet. And so our belief and embodiment of the gospel confronts the powers of sin, death, and hell in us and in the world. And you may recall that I, I asked you to think of the gospel as the insurgency of heaven, the insurgency of heaven. With that in mind, we're to proclaim this truth and invite others to come into the kingdom. And I think we can see this in our scripture reading this morning. If you have your Bible, would you turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 1? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John, chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 18 and then verses 29 through 51. If you don't have your Bible with you, there's one in the pew back in front of you, or you can use a Bible app on your phone, whichever works for you. I'll be reading from the New International Version. I know this is a quite, a bit, quite a bit of reading, but this is an important chapter in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospel of John, and it's, it's hard to pull out any few verses from this to really understand where John is going at the beginning of his Gospel. We should look at this together in, in one setting. If you would stand with me at the reading of the Scriptures in honor of the Holy Text. John chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and through, though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. 
Out of his fullness, we have received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is in himself God, and he is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Verse 29. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. And then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and they spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, you will be called Kephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. And he then added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. It's quite clear from the New Testament that disciples are called not only to embrace gospel living, that is to put our faith into action for others to see, 
But look here, think about the text we've just, we've just read. But also to share and proclaim the good news as we have opportunity. But unfortunately, for a variety of reasons, many Christians in the West have an aversion to sharing their faith and inviting people to Jesus. This past week, I found a a 2019 Barna study that showed that over 90% of millennial Christians, who are now the largest generation in the world, by the way, over 90% of millennial Christians believe that people needed Jesus But 50% of those believe that it was immoral and wrong to share our faith with others. Now you let that sink in for a moment. Over half of the 90% of millennial Christians in the church believe that it is immoral or wrong to share their faith and invite people to follow Jesus. Now why is that? Well, I think it's for a variety of reasons. And I think maybe some of these you could be sympathetic toward. The first one that comes to my mind is a history of colonialism-styled evangelism, right? Where the church has imposed itself upon others and usually with that white culture and indoctrinated others, sometimes in some really ugly ways. I mean, we've not quite grasped uh, the the ways in which the church has done this and and caused great harm to the world. You know, maybe it's a testimony to being growing up in an area in East Texas where there wasn't a lot of Muslims, at least not back in the late 80s and the early 90s, but we would have these revivalistic meetings called crusades. Now, think about that, right? So bad experiences and recognition of the errors of fundamentalist expressions of Christianity that has too often reduced the gospel down to a sinner's prayer using fear and guilt and shame and the threat of the fires of hell or, you know, peddling the gospel like Avon, Mary Kay, or essential oil products has turned people off. And that's not too surprising. I can certainly sympathize with that. And also, we now live in a postmodern culture where truth is mostly relative, and so proselytizing others is frowned upon. Who am I to presume that those people, especially if they seem well content and happy with their lives, should hear from me about how they ought to live, or what they need, or what truth is? Also, I see an observation that confrontational evangelism doesn't lead to sincere conversions and true discipleship. I've seen that firsthand. I remember when I first, you know, started to become sensitive to this, uh, and the last church I'd served in before stepping away from ministry for a while, and we would do these almost evangelism explosion type uh, missions where we would go out to people in our neighborhoods and knock on doors and, you know, present a plan of salvation and try to get people to recognize they're headed for hell and to say a prayer so that they can have their sins forgiven and get a ticket on the J train when, when it leaves the station, right? And I, I remember even then feeling like this just doesn't feel right. And, and, and besides that, I've also noticed that Often the people that we would coax into saying the prayer never showed up to church, never were baptized, and never seemed to follow Jesus. It could have been they were just trying to get us out of their house. 
That's a possibility. So think about all of these things, right? Why 50% of the largest generation alive today in the world think it's offensive, it's even immoral to share our faith. And so I want to say I can certainly acknowledge, and I hope that you will too, acknowledge that these things have happened and even can resonate with some of them. But we also need to know that we ought not never build our theology or our thinking and practice simply in reaction to the errors of the church, nor should we allow the spirit of the age to dictate what we should or shouldn't do. Amen? We shouldn't do that. Therefore, since Jesus calls us to follow him and then extend that come and see invitation to others, I want to help us this morning to reimagine and adopt a practice of evangelism, which simply literally means good newsing, sharing the good news. So reimagine and adopt a practice of that that lovingly invites others into the gospel story. And think of it this way, as one beggar showing another beggar where to find the food. As Jesus called his first disciples in John chapter 1, as we read this come and see approach, with come and see, and they then mimicked that invitational posture. Did you, did you see that when we read the text? Nathaniel said, can, Nazareth, can anything co- good come from that podunk town? And where is that in prophecy? And, and we don't see him arguing with him about that. He just simply says, come and see. Just, just come and see. I want us to, to call us to do that uh, as a church at Grantham. So it's a call to hold together, you see, the gospel living with gospel proclamation. Gospel living with gospel proclamation. They go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said. This is in Romans chapter 10, verse 14 and 15. Paul said, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? I know preaching seems to have negative connotations. Never thinking how the pastor feels about that when you're in a room. He's like, I don't mean to preach at you. Well, what's, what's wrong with preaching? You know what I, the, the point of that is, right, to lecture, maybe to lecture someone. I think that's what, what, we're, what we're getting at. But Paul is saying here, literally, the word is proclamation to articulate this message. How can someone know without us explaining it to them, without someone announcing it? And the same word is used when the angels announce uh, the birth of Jesus. We're announcing something that has happened in Christ and helping people to make sense of the story and inviting them in to that story. Look at verse 15. Paul says, how can anyone preach unless they are sent? And don't you know you're all sent? As it is written, and he quotes Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So there are really three basic questions that we need to answer this morning. If you're taking notes, you could jot these down. Number one, the first question, what is this gospel that we're called to preach and proclaim? Hopefully you've been paying attention to the first five weeks of this series and you've picked up on some of that. What is this gospel that we're called to proclaim? Number two, why bother sharing it? And number three, how do we lovingly do that in an increasingly secular, post-Christian, pluralistic society? How do we share the gospel? 
So let's start with question number one. What is this gospel that we're called to preach and proclaim? Let's go back to our graphic. You could ask the question in other words, in another way. In other words, that's this. What does this image mean for us and our lost and hurting neighbors? How do we articulate this? How do we express this belief that Jesus has broken into, God has broken into human history and and says that the stuff is good, creation is good, and heaven and earth, God's space and our space are coming together. And you see, God wants to confront the powers of sin, death, and hell, and he wants to drive it out. And he's not going to kick this world into the cosmic trash can, but he's going to renew, restore, and resurrect it. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. Our lives can simply continue into eternity. How do we articulate that? Remember, this image is a 30,000-foot view. I said that in the very beginning of this series. This is a big-picture view of the gospel. So let's bring this down to ground level and what it might look like and sound like to express the gospel to our neighbors. Yes, God loves all of creation, and he sent Jesus to prove it, to restore it, and one day to resurrect it. It makes me think of what Rich Mullins, the, the Christian artist, uh, once said. You know, he was the, um, the artist, the Christian artist that wrote Awesome God and uh, did a, an iteration of, of the creed, the Apostles' Creed, put it to music. He said, God loves me, big deal, God loves everybody. That's what he said before he'd really come to experience God who looks like Jesus in a new way because this is ultimately what it, what it comes to, isn't it, friends? You see, because functionally, as everyday life goes, we risk all of this and everything that we've said simply being high, lofty, abstract ideas until we understand how this gospel intersects with our own lives and until we experience the love of God for ourselves in the Word made flesh. And in the gospel, the the very core of the gospel is that, an invitation to experience and to know the God who looks like Jesus It's the essence of Christianity. It's the core of our faith. This is the good news for us. We know what God is really like in Christ. And because of Jesus, we know that we are loved. And through experiences, real experiences of this love, we are healed and made healthy and whole. You know, this this past past couple of weeks, actually, I've counseled with people who've had various kinds of issues and things going on in their lives. And I really can say this now that I think about it on all of the kind of pastoral counseling I've ever done and working with people and trying to make disciples and even being aware of my own journey and the, and the, the things that I've had to work through in my own brokenness is, is recognizing, and this is what I've, I've thought about the last couple of weeks, no matter what the issues are, no matter how the brokenness shows up in your life, whether it's addictions, or whether maybe, maybe mom or dad mistreated you, whatever it is, folks, the answer to all of our healing is an experience with the love of God. 
Because as we've said before, what comes into your head when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And, and the thing is, the way you have been treated or mistreated has impacted, whether you're aware of it or not, your portrait of God. You see, mom and dad are supposed to show us what God is like, the God who looks like Jesus, but that doesn't always happen, now, does it? And so, ultimately, whatever it is, addictions, whether it's pornography, whether it's still trying to process the trauma that you experienced as a young person, the answer is to come to know the God who looks like Jesus, and not just analytically, and not just as some lofty abstract idea, but an experience of the person of Jesus. Because our portrait of God is the most important thing about us. Because it's when we see God rightly and let's say experience him for real, that it shapes who we are, how we view ourselves and how we treat others. Because if your portrait and your image of God is off, then you're going to reflect that in your life. You're not going to know who you are. You're going to think very lowly of yourself and maybe lowly of others. Our portrait of God and our identity, the way we see ourselves is important. All of our healing will come from experiencing God's forgiveness and love. And this is the need of every person on the planet. I may have told you this before, I, I recently read a book um, by these neuroscientists and they weren't even Christians themselves, in fact one of them was a Buddhist, but did these studies of people, all the people that have prayed across various religions and depending upon their concept of God, it would determine the level of peace they experienced in their life. It also determined the way in which they treated others. You know, whether they were judgmental, whether they lived in fear, whether they, they were quick to anger and wrath. Because what you imagine about God is what you will become yourself and how you will treat others. So again, this comes to the very core of the gospel. Yes, all of this is true. Heaven and earth are coming together. This is what Jesus has done on a cosmic scale. But where we want to invite people into this story is to come to know the God and experience the God that's been revealed in Jesus. To be reconciled to the God who looks like Christ. And if you think about it that way, what then is repentance? What then is repentance all about? It is about turning the soul to the light, life, and love of God revealed in Jesus. Let me say that again. Repentance which often has these sort of negative connotations. This is what it's really about. It's about turning away from your own way of doing things and turning your soul to the light, life, and love of God in Jesus. It's about turning from your own way, from eating at the world's table, from your false perceptions of God, letting those go, and stop drinking from the wells of the world, turning away from the idols of the heart, and trying to save yourself, and turning from the hell in our own hearts and in our world and receiving the good news of the kingdom that's been revealed in Jesus. As I've said before, taking serious the God who has been revealed in Jesus through the Gospels. That this Jesus who tells parables about fathers who run to their prodigal sons is the same God the Father we're being invited to worship today.
Question number two, why bother sharing this message? Or put another way, why do people need Jesus and the gospel? Well, listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6 and 7. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And actually in the Greek there, it is um, emphatic. Literally says, I myself am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus saying no other way. I am the way to know the Father. And look at the word Jesus uses. He uses the word Abba in Aramaic. It's the word for Papa or Daddy. I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to know God as this Father in this way except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. Jesus said, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. As we read earlier in John chapter 1, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, John told us, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Now you're thinking, no, wait a minute. You're saying nobody else in the Old Testament seen God? Well, of course, plenty of folks knew something of God in the Old Testament to the extent that God had revealed himself. Therefore, Jesus is telling us that he is the full and complete picture of what God is like. There's been nothing about God that is true that is left out of what has been shown to us in Jesus Christ. And folks, today, even in the church, I think is the most radical part of what we're supposed to be proclaiming because a lot of Christians haven't even embraced this. The radical nature of the incarnation that God has truly and fully shown us what he's like in Jesus. So look, don't miss this progressive revelation this development of relationship with God through the Bible. Think back all the way to the beginning. Abraham learned that there is one God, not many gods, there's one God. The monotheistic religions began here with Abraham. And he, he befriends us, God does, wants to bless those who trust him. And that through a called out people, he would bring about his redemptive plan for the world. That was the theology lesson for Abraham about what God is like, who God is. And then, fast forward, God reveals his glory to Moses on Mount Sinai with his name. He says, I am the I am. God says, I am gracious. I am compassionate. I am slow to anger. I am abounding in loving kindness. I am keeping my promises and blessing faithfulness and so forth. God revealing more about his character. And then King David says God made himself known to Moses, but David, unlike others who had come before him, understood God as personal. Now, folks, this was just unheard of when it comes to deities. And, and, and King David, he understood this. The psalmist understood that God is personal. So David said, he's my God. David said, he's my shepherd. He's my deliverer. It's not about tribalism, but it's about a personal encounter with the living God, which is why in the Psalms he speaks to God as sort of like a divine therapist. David confesses his sins, he shares his burdens, he expresses anger and lament. And we're shown we can do that with the living God. And then Jesus. Jesus, we fast forward, we see Jesus takes us to a, a new unprecedented level of intimacy with God. First by revealing himself to be God in the flesh, but also by teaching us to know and to relate to God as Abba, 
as Papa, as Daddy. And like a loving father, and I know that, and that might be hard for some of us who didn't have that to relate to God in this way. And my encouragement for you, because I can somewhat relate to that, is to say, get to know Jesus, because Jesus says, when you've seen me, you've seen loving Abba. You can know what daddy is really like. And so by teaching us to know this father, and like a loving father, this Abba revealed in Jesus accepts us as we are, not as we should be, because we will never be as we should be. Do you know that for yourself? That God loves you as you are, not as you should be, because you will never be as you should be. You know, sometimes the arrogance of us to think that God can't love us when he has a much higher opinion of us than we do ourselves. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, the Lord The God revealed in Jesus and the God who is Father runs after you. He wants to know you. He wants you to know him. You see, we run away. We hide in the garden in shame and guilt. But the Lord isn't afraid of our sin. He knows us exactly as we are. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And yet he is still like this father in the prodigal son's story. But you know, this love is hard to grasp. I I give you that. I mean, just think about the other brother in that story. He didn't didn't care for the father's love and, and that version of grace and acceptance. And Jesus knew when he told this parable that there were religious folks around who wouldn't have liked that portrait of God either, but it is the true portrait, Jesus tells us. And you see, once we've experienced that love for ourselves, we're happy to extend it to others. And so really, I would say to us, if, if, if we're not okay with that version of God's love and grace, it, it might not be because of those people. It might be because you've not experienced it for yourself. Think about this. This is why Peter and John say this to the Jewish leaders. If you, if you consider everything that we've just seen and heard and we hear what Jesus is saying about revealing to us what God is really like, then you can hear Peter and John say this to the Jewish leaders who want them to stop proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom in Acts chapter 4. And this is what they say when they're threatened with death. They say, as for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. I I had to ask myself this question. Do I feel that way about the gospel? Am I coming to know God this intimately? Am I having experiences with God and his love so much so that I would say I cannot help but speaking about what I've seen and heard? Because the abstract ideas and the theological ideas, no matter how great and freeing some of those can be, is not going to be enough to motivate you to tell others. It's not going to be enough to say, come and see, if you've not seen it for yourselves. And then question number three, how do we lovingly share the good news in an increasingly secular, post-Christian, pluralistic society? To answer that, let's consider the approach of the early church. 
And there's just some examples that we can find in the Gospels and, and say, the book of Acts. How do we see early Christians evangelizing non-believers and, and what lessons can we learn in body today? Well, the first one is this. We, we are compelled by love and we genuinely care for people. Folks are not objects for conversion. They're people made in the image of God. Made in the image of God, broken not as they should be, but remember, God loves us not as we are, or as, as we are rather, but not as we should be because we never will be as we should be. So we are compelled by love. We're not compelled out of guilt. We're not compelled out of the thinking, well, if I don't do it, their blood is on my hands and the other kinds of distorted, dysfunctional, psychologically damaging things that fundamentalist churches have said. But we do it out of sheer compulsion that we've experienced the love of God and we want them to do the same. God has made this difference in our life and we want to share that with the world out of a genuine care for people. I, I remember Jesus this time, he, he looks at a crowd of people and it says that he had compassion on them. His, think about that, his first thought, he looked at the masses of people and his first thought was he had compassion on them. And the word there literally means that his gut was wrenched. His heart was torn open. He was moved with compassion as he saw these people need to experience the love of God. They need to come to know the good news. This is what motivates us. Something else that we see in the early church is we, we should meet people where they are and come alongside them. I think about the story of Philip, who's a disciple of Jesus, and he's, he's walking along the road. You remember, this is after the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's walking along the road, and he sees this Ethiopian eunuch riding along in a chariot, and he notices he's reading a scroll from Isaiah. And the Spirit moves on Philip to eventually come alongside the guy and start a conversation with him. What, what are you reading? And, and the Ethiopian eunuch tells him, and the Spirit then moves Philip to basically hop in the chariot with this guy and explain to him what he was reading and how it pointed to Jesus. Just one example of many of how we're to meet people where they are and come alongside them. Not expect people to get their lives cleaned up and their theology cleaned up, but simply meeting them where they are with the love of God and coming alongside them. Remember, as one beggar helps to show the other beggar where there's food. Also, we look for how God is already at work and we join him there. I think about Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. It says he was a Roman centurion, right? He works for the empire, a man of violence, but yet somehow, we don't know, we don't know how, became a God-fearer, which meant he worshiped Yahweh. Did it happen because he was one of the ones who witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus? We don't know, maybe, that's an interesting thought. But he's worshiping Yahweh, but doesn't yet have the full story. And the Holy Spirit connects Cornelius and Peter. Shows Cornelius that he's been revealed in Jesus, God's been revealed in Jesus, and shows Peter that God accepts all people, no matter who they are. He's made them all clean with this vision that breaks the church wide open to the Gentiles. So in this, we, we look for how God is already at work and we join him there. I mean, think about approaching people this way. Not, I'm taking Jesus to people, but recognizing Jesus is already at work there. The issue for a lot of people is they don't recognize it as Jesus. 
And see, th- this is what can make a lot of us who've grown up in fundamentalist Christianity a little bit nervous to think that the one God who's been revealed in Jesus could be at work in other world religions. Now, that isn't to say that God sits up on a mountain and there's many roads to get to him, so take your, take your pick. No, Jesus said, I myself am the way and the truth and the life. But it is to say this, all truth is God's truth. And God meets people where they are with the intent to reveal the Father. Jesus reveals the Father, but Jesus also said people can't come to him without the Father revealing it. And so meeting people where they are and noticing how is God already at work here before I got here? Before I came to this conversation, what has God been doing? And so that will require us to listen. I'll say that, something more about that in just a moment. But to listen, to try to notice. How has God already been at work at their story and in their story? And maybe they just don't recognize it. Another thing that we should be about doing is developing relationships and looking for an opportunity and an invitation. And this makes me think of Acts 17 and Paul is strolling up in this very pagan city in Athens. He sees all of these statues that have been dedicated to all the gods of the Greco-Roman world. He finds a statue that says, dedicated to an unknown God. I mean, they were super spiritual and religious, right? They want to make sure they don't leave any gods out and offend them. So they have a statue dedicated to an unknown God. And Paul sees it and says, "Mm, That's my ticket in. That's how I'm going to share the gospel with them. I'm going to tell them that I've come to proclaim the God which they don't know. But I have seen and experienced on the road to Damascus. You see, that is, again, looking for how God is already at work and developing rapport and relationships, looking for opportunities and ways to creatively share the good news. And sometimes it does require waiting for an invitation for us to have optimal effect. Has someone given you permission to speak truth into their life? Sometimes that is required. Not always, but sometimes, maybe a lot of times, that is helpful. Do you know this person well enough to speak truth into their life? Because bullhorn evangelism is not the way of 21st century America. A Couple other things, on occasion we may be called to be bold and take a risk. We're certainly not ruling out the fact that God may move on you, the Spirit may move on you to evangelize people you don't know and to speak boldly in a particular context. This is possible, we see evidence and examples of that in the New Testament. And also we always share in love and we leave the results to God. We always share in love and we leave the results to God. Listen to what Paul wrote. Think about the way we have conversation because Paul was certainly concerned about that, the gospel in conversation. He said, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Think about that, church. Be wise in the way that you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. And then listen to Peter comment on the gospel in conversation in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. He said, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness 
and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. May there not be any weight to the accusations, but at the end of the day, may may they come away as they did with the early church and say, I wanna know this God who's been revealed in Jesus because I've been so moved by the love of his people. So let's get as practical as we can here as we come to the end of the message. Let's, Let's get extremely practical. What does the gospel in conversation look like? Here's some helpful ways to meet people where they are and share how you are being changed by Christ and the good news. Number one, ask good questions. Ask good questions. Think about how Jesus did that. You think about how Jesus asked uh, good questions. You know, I remember before he healed a guy, he said, do you want to be healed? <laughs> you know, just assume it, right? But do you really want to be healed? I think about the conversations he had, like with the woman at the well, and, and, and the conversations he had with the religious leaders, returning their questions with even better questions, kingdom questions. Asking questions, listening and getting to know folks. That's what number two is, be a good listener. Asking questions necessitates that we listen for the answers. You see, you can't see how God is at work in a person's life unless you ask questions and unless you listen. How can you even know where to begin with him unless you do these things? So ask good questions. Be a good listener. Number three, be patient and let the Spirit lead. You know, I I know what it's like to be in conversation with someone and you're sensing, oh, there's an opportunity for me to share and you just start to panic. (laughs) What would I do? And it feels like, oh, the the weight of the world is on you at the moment and, and this person's salvation is dependent upon you. No, 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 no. Back away, take a deep breath and say, where is God at work? How is the Spirit wanting to use me? And to be patient, you may just be there to plant seeds, not to see the plant come to full bloom. This is important work too. Number four, witness to the gospel's power in your own life. Share your own story. How has God met you? Just share that story. Swap stories. How has the Lord been at work? And can you testify to the power of the gospel in your own life. Number five, invite them in to the gospel story. If your conversation gets that far, and let's say you've developed a relationship that's, that's gone long enough down the road that you get to this point, invite them into the gospel story. At some point, they may even ask you questions. Be ready, as we heard Peter and Paul both say, be ready with an answer for the hope that you have and help them to understand how God's space and our space is coming together and what the resurrection of Jesus means for us today. And then lastly, number six. You think about this, the six days of creation. We're creating something new here. Love them to Jesus. Folks, whatever you do or whatever you say, you know, you may blow it in your gospel presentation, but you will never be wrong for loving people and believing in the power of that love to change lives. Finally, here are two questions for helping us reflect and respond this morning. I hope you give some serious thought to these. Number one, how is God calling you to live out the gospel? 
How does your family, maybe your neighbors, your coworkers need to see more of your faith? You know, if, if you've been working closely with folks for a year or two or more and they don't know you're a believer, that might be a good sign for you to start thinking about how you're modeling your faith around others. So think about that. What, what would that look like? How's God calling you to live out more of the gospel in your life? Number two, and the last question for reflection response, how is God inviting you to share your faith? Maybe just close your eyes for just a moment. Would you do that as we close? Just close your eyes. And I, I, want, you to, I want you to ask this question to the Lord. Lord, who within my sphere of influence needs to hear the gospel of the kingdom? Just ask the Lord that question. Lord, who within my sphere of influence needs to hear the gospel of the kingdom? Now let me ask you, who came into your mind? Who did the Lord bring into your heart? Now let us ask the Lord together to help us share our faith in love. Father, we are so moved by the good news of Jesus that we know what you're like, what you've always been like. You fully revealed yourself in Jesus, that you love us beyond comprehension. That when you look upon us and you think about us, that your gut is wrenched, your heart is torn open, you have compassion upon us. And God, we thank you that as we walk along the road with Jesus as his disciples, we have grace upon grace, that more and more we've been transformed one experience at a time of your love and grace. Lord, now equip us and empower us to share our faith with those that you've put on our heart. We can't do it alone. We know this. So Holy Spirit, come, fill us and empower us so that others will say how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.